Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We'll be reading 1, 1 through 1, 5. This is what it says. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word, Lord, is a lamp unto our feet. Your word lights our path. So, Father, this morning, help us to understand what we have here in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Lord, by your spirit, give us understanding so that we may live lives according to the truth that you have revealed to us. And Father, by your spirit, enable us to live in a way that pleases you. For the glory of Christ, Father, we pray in his name. Amen. October 31st, 1517. If you know your church history, you probably know that date. It's not Halloween. Okay, well, it is Halloween. But that's not why we in in this world know that date. It was the day that the Augustinian monk, a, a man named Martin Luther, walked to the castle church in the city of Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to the church door. It was the day, in some sense, that the great reformation of the church began. But that's not where it started. I mean, so think, think about the question behind that. What provoked Martin Luther to the point of writing out 95 objections that he had with the Roman Catholic Church? What opened his eyes to the perversions of the gospel that were present in the church during his time? What provoked him to start on this path and to defy the Pope himself. Well, there were many different things, but one, one was his formative experience in studying and lecturing through the book of Galatians in its original language. See, so that happened in 1517. Beginning in 1516, one year before he had started lecturing through the book of Galatians. Now, he was just a professor in a, church, in a, a university at the time, and, and the university had told him, we want you to teach a class on Galatians, not knowing what that would provoke. So Luther began studying Galatians. may sound silly, but back in those days, it was not a common thing to study the Bible. But Luther, Professor Luther, began studying, and the experience was was transformative for him. The seed of the true gospel of grace was planted in his heart and it continued to bear fruit in his life, so much so that the book of Galatians, he would say, became his favorite book in all of the Bible. Throughout the course of his life, he lectured through the entire book three times, once in 1516, once in 1519, and once toward the end of his life in 1535. It was during his lecture series that the man who would later become his his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, was converted. Philip wrote this of his conversion. Luther expounded the epistle to the Galatians with great skill and spiritual insight. As I listened to him, listen to this, the clouds of my doubts were dispelled and I began to see the sun shining through the scriptures. 
That's what the book of Galatians did in Philip Melanchthon's life. In Galatians, Luther found his greatest weapon against the gospel of works righteousness being proclaimed by the Pope and his bishops. Here in Galatians, Luther found the secret of his own deliverance that he had been searching for. He loved Galatians so much that he said this about it. He said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Catherine was his wife's name. And if you know anything about Luther's marriage, that's a huge compliment. He loved his wife dearly. And so in all of scripture, he looked at the epistle to the Galatians and said, I'm married to this one. So what is it about the letter to the Galatians that caused this, that caused such love to rise up in the heart of Luther? What was it about the the book of Galatians that dispelled Melanchthon's clouds of doubt and allowed him to see the sun shining through the scriptures for the first time? What does this book contain that grasping its truth led Luther to declare war on the Pope and the entire Roman church at the peril of his own life? Well, you have to wait and find out. But my prayer this morning is that by the end of today, we'll we'll begin to understand the answer to this question. And throughout our time spent in the book of Galatians, you'll see more and more what drove Luther from this letter. Now, that is a little historical background that, that makes Galatians unique. But, but Galatians is also just unique in and of itself among the other letters of the Bible. How so? Well, it's the only Pauline letter written not to a single church, but to a group of churches. So all the other letters that Paul wrote were either written to a specific person like Timothy or Titus or written to a church, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi. This one is is written to a group of churches, we'll see. Also, the thing that sets it apart from all the other letters in the New Testament is its tone. Galatians is without doubt the harshest and most alarming letter in the scriptures. It's, It's one long rebuke. Now, Paul writes it out of love, but Paul is not nice in the letter to the Galatians. Uh, We could say that Paul sees what is going on in Galatia as such a danger that he, it's no holds barred. He takes the gloves off. And so in Galatians, we have some of the most striking statements in scripture. Paul places a, a curse upon his opponents. Towards the end of the letter, Paul tells the Galatians that he wishes his opponents would emasculate themselves. Paul sees the danger and he reacts accordingly. accordingly. Paul in Galatians is like a, a parent watching his toddler wandering toward a busy street. Now, in that situation, a good parent does not speak quietly. Excuse me, child, please come back. Um, don't, don't go over there. In, in a situation like this, with this amount of danger, a parent doesn't prioritize politeness. A good parent yells, screams if necessary, stop, stop, stop. Why? Because it's a life or death matter. And that is what is going on in these Galatian churches. They have wandered into the busy street, so to speak, and cars are zooming all around them. Paul sees this from a distance. It's a life or death matter. A doctrinal issue so serious that Paul says at one point in chapter 5, guys, if you continue on this path, you are severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. Eternity hangs in the balance. The gospel hangs in the balance. Christ himself hangs in the balance. And so, Paul reacts accordingly. Why does Paul care so much? He was the one who planted these churches. Him and his team had planted these churches in Galatia. Acts 13 and 14 is where they tell us this story. There are four churches that we know of in Galatia. Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Paul had gone through these cities, proclaiming the gospel, planting the churches in each one of these cities. 
By doing so, he came into the city proclaiming the truth of Christ. These people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Paul had destroyed the devil's reign in their life, the gospel. And now the enemy wants them back. And so he sent these false teachers to deceive them, to hinder them, or or what Paul says later, to bewitch them, to deceive them. These Galatian churches had been swayed, deceived by false teachers, bewitched, led astray, hindered in their faith. They had been persuaded to leave the gospel of freedom that Paul had preached to them and to believe a false, perverted, distorted gospel. But what are these false teachers teaching? Now, this will become more and more clear as we continue through the letter, but in summary form, they were teaching that Gentiles, so non-Jews, who wish to become true followers of Jesus, must submit themselves to circumcision and probably along with that, follow all the Mosaic laws. They were, if you've heard the term, they were Judaizers. They were basically saying, okay, you want to become a Christian, that's good, we're Christians too, but don't you know, guys, to become a true Christian, you need to follow the Old Testament laws. So by extension, they were calling into, qu- the que- into question the gospel that Paul had preached to the Galatians. The gospel they brought was not a gospel of freedom. It was a gospel of circumcision. It was a gospel of, of works and of law and of self-righteousness. A gospel that in reality is no gospel at all. How were they doing this? They really had two strategies. We'll see the first one a lot in, in, in today's text. The first strategy they had was, was kind of a personal argument. They were disputing the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. Right? So they were, they were making uh, biblical arguments, but they were also calling Paul's apostleship into doubt. Now, this happened all the time to the apostle Paul. Makes sense because he's not one of the original 12 apostles. So it would make sense that if God was going to use him, people would constantly say, well, he's not even one of the 12. Come on, guys. Be pretty easy to do. Paul deals with this a lot in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So they were calling Paul's apostleship into, into doubt. Number two, they make a biblical argument. So they were arguing from Scripture. Again, these were Jews or, or something that they were making a scriptural argument, most likely from Genesis 17, which we just studied recently. Paul gets into the biblical argument about in chapter 3. They were teaching, hey, guys, Genesis 17, God clearly tells Abraham, if you want to be in the covenant, you need to be circumcised. So we just got to follow the Bible. We take the Bible literally. Bible says to get circumcised. You guys need to get circumcised if you want to be a part of Abraham's blessing. They're probably saying things like, this guy, Paul, who's coming to you, he's trying to teach you not to obey God. We're just trying to tell you to obey God. And so those are kind of the two strategies they're using, a personal argument against Paul and then biblical arguments that Paul will deal with later in Galatians. So my prayer is this, that that through our time spent in Galatians, by studying what Paul says, how he argues, we will gain a greater understanding of the role of the law in redemptive history and in our Christian lives. We'll gain a greater understanding of the Abrahamic covenant and ultimately, ultimately, we will gain a greater understanding of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit's work, that our affections and our love for him will will increase and our faith in the triune God will be affirmed and strengthened. So that's kind of where we're heading in general in Galatians. Let's, Let's dig into this text this morning. The first five verses... And what we're going to see here in Paul's opening, we see this in all the openings in the letter, but I think especially in Galatians, is that he is, every single word is intentional, and it's laced with gospel truth. Paul never minces words, he never wastes words, but these words here we have in the beginning of Galatians are not just Paul's words, they are the words of Holy Scripture. So let's, let's dig into that. Look at verse 1. First thing we're going to see here is, is Paul's divine commission. Paul's divine commission. He writes this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. 
So Paul begins his letter reminding the Galatians of his status as an apostle. Now, three questions we need to ask of this test. First, who is Paul? Paul was a church planter. Paul was a missionary. But he wasn't always. We, we can forget sometimes his past life. Paul was not one of the original followers of Jesus. Paul, during the time of the Gospels and when Jesus was alive, was not a follower of Jesus. Paul did not become a follower of Jesus until after Jesus had died and rose again. Now, Paul, formerly known as Saul, was a highly educated, highly trained Jewish Bible scholar. He was, as he, he says this of himself in Philippians, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So that was a school of Judaism, the most strict of all of the Jews. A Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, the most Pharisaical of all the Pharisees there was. That was Paul. And he'll get into that later in Galatians. But before Paul's conversion, he was not just a Jew kind of going about his own business. No, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul hated the church and he hated Christians. He did everything he could to destroy the church, to imprison Christians, to kill them. We see in the book of Acts that the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, as he's being stoned to death slowly, Paul was there. He was holding the cloaks of the men who were stoning them, and he stood there approvingly saying, this is a good thing that this man is being stoned to death. Paul was, in his own words, an insolent opponent of Jesus, an enemy of the cross, and an enemy of the church. He says this later in Galatians chapter 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's who Paul is. But God had mercy on Paul. And God had a plan for Paul's life. And so Christ came to Paul. We see this story in Acts 9, starting in verse 1. He says this, but, but Saul, that's his, his previous name, I love this language, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul has no chill, okay? Whatever he does, he goes full bore. So he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he find any belonging to the way, that is Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, there's more to the story, but Paul here repents Christ comes to Paul, stop, literally stops him dead in his tracks, knocks him off his horse. Paul converts. He repents. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, Yahweh in the flesh, and he becomes a follower of Christ. He's baptized in the name of Christ. And immediately he starts preaching the gospel. He goes into the synagogue and arguing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. That's who Paul is. That's who Paul was. But Paul is not just an ordinary Christian. This testimony he has in Acts is not a normal testimony. He was commissioned as an apostle by Christ Jesus himself. So that's who Paul was. But here's our second question. Well, what is an apostle? This is very important. Well, literally an apostle is someone who is sent forth with a specific mission. So you can think like a, a delegate or an ambassador but more specifically in Scripture, the 12 apostles, or sometimes they're just called the 12, were the original disciples that Jesus himself chose. These 12 carried a unique status and authority given to them by Jesus. So, for example, all of the books of the New Testament are connected in some way to one of the apostles. An apostle, then, is one who is commissioned directly by God for a specific task. Okay. Third question, how did Paul become an apostle? He wasn't one of the original 12. Another way you could ask this question, where did his apostolic, come from, his apostolic calling come from? 
Now, he doesn't answer this question, or he does answer I'm sorry, he answers this question in verse 1. Look, first he tells us where he did not get his calling from. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So right away, this tells us that probably the false teachers in Galatia were saying, you know, this Paul guy, he was just commissioned as an apostle by some people. They were probably spreading rumors about the apostle Paul. Look, he's not even one of the original 12. He's a charlatan. Listen to us. We know the real apostles in Jerusalem. And so Paul, again, right from the beginning, answers these doubts head on. He did not receive his calling from men nor through man. It was not from men. In other words, his calling did not originate with a human person, with any man or any human. It was not through man. In other words, it was not given to him or mediated to him by another person was not given to him by the apostles even. Essentially what Paul is saying here is his apostolic apostolic calling was completely divine in origin. It came directly from God himself. He tells us this next in verse 1. So not from men nor through men. It's not in any way from any human, but rather through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's appointment is divine and his commission is divine. It came directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father. It came from the Messiah and the one who raised the Messiah from the dead. And you see what Paul's doing here. This is why we don't just skip over the introduction verses of these letters. He's he's already shown us one of the ways he's going to be arguing against his opponent. And in other words, he's he's kind of loading his gun. He's setting the stage for what he's going to argue. Think of the implications of what he's saying here. If Paul's apostolic calling was from God, then what does that say about his message? It says that his message is from God. The gospel that he preached originally to the Galatians and the gospel that he's going to preach and the way he's going to argue and the things he's going to write in Galatians are not the words of a mere man, but are words that come through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And therefore, these false teachers have a gospel with a different origin. They have a false gospel. Whoever these villains were, Paul is kind of passively saying they are opposing the work of God and Christ, the one who raised him from the dead. They were enemies of Christ. Enemies of Christ, not just Paul. You see that? Paul is saying, I was commissioned as an apostle by Jesus himself. So if you oppose me, realize, Galatians, who you're opposing. Your problem isn't with me, it's with God. That's why he can pronounce a curse upon his opponents, because he knows who called him. But look again at that last phrase of verse 1 who raised him from the dead. Now that seems a little out of place. I had to ask this question, well, why does he mention that here? But as always, nothing in the scriptures is out of place. Nothing is random. Why does he mention it here? Why does he mention the resurrection? Because again, what he's doing here in this introduction, he's kind of foreshadowing the things he's going to bring up later. It's one of the main themes of Galatians. The dawning of the messianic age. The difference that the coming of Messiah Jesus has made in our relation to the law, in our relation to God, in everything. And when did this occur? When did the reign of Messiah Jesus officially begin? The resurrection. The resurrection. What is one of the first things that Jesus says after he's resurrected? Think of the gospel of Matthew. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He's become the messianic king. The resurrection was the signal to all of creation, earthly and spiritual powers, that the old age, what Paul calls later this present evil age, the age of the law, the age of slavery under the law, was over. The reign of Messiah had begun. Jesus' resurrection signaled all of this. The resurrection began the new age in which God would fulfill all of his promises. 
Paul had preached this to the Galatians. And so he's, he's kind of putting this in here to remind them, remember what I taught you. They had believed this. But now they were wavering. They were believing a message by these false teachers that was putting them back in time in redemptive history. They had gone from the freedom of Messiah back under the law. These teachers were trying to deceive the Galatians into deserting Christ and his promises. So the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of his eternal reign as Messiah, King. And it is this King, truly human. Truly God, whom appointed and commissioned Paul as an apostle. Paul was chosen by the Father, sent by the Son, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now he reminds them of his authority, and he writes in that authority. He's already begun to show his hand of how he's going to argue with these false teachers. But he's not done. Look, look what he says next in verse 2. He wants to make sure they understand he's not alone. He says this, and all the brothers who are with me could say brothers and sisters <coughs> excuse me paul is showing here and this is unique to galatians too he doesn't do this in any of his other letters he's showing the galatians that he is not alone but rather all the brothers and sisters who are with him stand with him he's writing on behalf of of everyone who's with them most likely the church at antioch at this point in his life they stand with him, they affirm the same gospel as him, and they affirm him as an apostle. Paul's gospel, in other words, and his teaching are not unique. They're not idiosyncratic. He's, he's leaning on every source of authority that he has here. He, he's leaning on his own authority as an apostle. He's leaning on, his authority, on the church's corporate authority. Say, it's not just me. Everyone I'm with is agreeing that you guys are going way out there. He's doing everything he can. He's using every available tool to try to wake up these straying churches and to bring them back into the truth. And this is, of course, to whom he writes. To the churches in Galatia, he says in verse 2. Four churches in the Roman province of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, which he planted on his first missionary journey. Now, if you're familiar with the other letters in the New Testament... This is a pretty cold address for the Apostle Paul. Normally, he says things like, you know, in Ephesians, to all the faithful saints in Ephesus, you know, to all the ones who love the God and this, here, just to the churches in Galatia. And I think in this, we see already, Paul is very concerned about these churches. He's either rushing through the beginning to get to the meat, or I think he has serious doubts about whether or not they are still in the faith. But he doesn't launch into his argument just yet. He offers a final greeting, an initial prayer of sorts, a blessing. And in this, we're going to see Paul do the exact same thing he just did. He is going to load as much gospel into them as he possibly can before he even gets into his letter. He's going to remind them where he came from. And what they used to believe. Look at verse 3 through 5. We'll read these and then we'll break them down. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful and concise summary of the gospel. If you want to memorize a really short presentation for the gospel, this would be a great one. You can start to see, even in this, why Luther loved it so much. Every verse is just, is just exploding with gospel truth. But, it, but again, notice what Paul is doing in this fight over the gospel. He is just displaying it over and over and over before their eyes. It's like he's saying to them, remember what you used to believe. Remember what I taught you. Remember how glorious and good the true gospel is. Why would you give it up for something else? And so he begins, grace to you and peace from God. Now, Paul begins that way in almost all of his letters, but, but here in Galatians, it's almost a bit chilling, I think, because the Galatians are in jeopardy of He'll say this later, placing themselves outside of the grace of God. And instead of peace, they are rebelling against God. 
They had heard Paul proclaim this grace to them when he preached the good news of Jesus to them. But it's, it's almost like they, they took the gospel of grace that Paul had, had proclaimed to them. They, they try to stuff it back in its package, and they're trying to return it now to God, saying, yeah, no, we're good. We're going to do our own works now to try to earn righteousness. It's foolishness. So Paul again says, grace and peace. You need grace and peace. What is the source of this grace and peace? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we just read through these things because we're, we're so used to them. We've read the new, okay, from God the Father, Lord Jesus, okay. You have to realize how radical this is. Paul uses one preposition, from, to describe one source, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator writes this about this verse. He says, our familiarity with passages like this often blinds us to the profound statement Paul is making here. He is, again, he had done this in verse 1. He is equating God the Father with the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is affirming and proclaiming that the man, Jesus Christ, who walked the earth in human flesh, is equal with God and is, in fact, God himself. He's done that twice already in these first verses. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Any good Jew of that day would say, that's blasphemy. Unless Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. And that is exactly what Paul believes. And that's what he's showing us here. The church fathers, this, this is said, like if you read Da Vinci Code or stuff like that, people will say, or go on TikTok or something, look, the church invented the deity of Christ like hundreds of years later, blah, 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 blah. If you just read the Bible carefully, what you'll see is that the church didn't invent the deity of Christ. They just affirmed what was plain in the teaching of Scripture all along. This was the view of the apostles. And we have here clearly both truths right before us. Jesus Christ is God. God the Father is God. And yet, Jesus is not the Father. And the Father is not Jesus. There's only one God. One source. This is basic Trinitarian theology here in an introduction to Paul's letter. Jesus the Son, God the Father, one in essence yet distinct in person. It's the God that we worship. It's all over the New Testament if you simply kind of dig and look for it. And again, this is, this is the dividing line. There are all sorts of perversions of religion running around today. Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them, think, think about this, all of them have a Jesus, but they deny this. They deny his unity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. They deny the Trinity. They deny his divinity. And what does that lead to? They deny, just like these false teachers, the gospel of grace. They deny that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Each one of them has created a system of laws and works to earn the grace of God. What we believe about God matters. These truths that we have confessed in the Apostles' Creed that have been handed down to us over thousands of years, sometimes by the very blood of the martyrs, are not trivial things. They are there for a reason, and we confess them and profess them because they are what God has revealed to us in Scripture. Doctrine matters. We'll see that especially as Galatians continues. So Paul here prays a blessing of grace and peace. But next he gets specific about Jesus and what he has done. By believing this false teaching, the Galatians were undermining the work of Christ himself. So he says this, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins... To deliver us from the present evil age. Now we're going to find out later in Galatians that these churches had forgotten the significance and meaning of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ will be in focus in Galatians. And so Paul kind of, again, he's, he's front-loading it here. He brings it into focus. The Galatians had begun to believe and to look to their own acts of righteousness 
to be assured of God's work in their life. But Paul is again subtly reminding them, no, there is only one place to look if you want to be righteous before God. And that is to Jesus Christ, his work and his righteousness. He says he gave himself for our sins. We can learn so much about the true gospel just from these these few words. What do we see in these words? He gave himself for our sins. Well, we see the weight of our sin. It was our sins. Not just sin in general. Not just sin as a concept or as as a theory. Our sins, the things we have done that cost the Son of God his earthly life. The things we have done. This is, what, this is why Jesus had to go to the cross. It's why he had to bear the wrath of God. He had to die because of what we have done. He gave himself for our sins. We were so dead in our sin, so far from God, so separated from God. It took the very death of Christ himself to reconcile us. So we see the weight of our sin. It reminds me of the song we sang this last week, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. You who think of sin but lightly, you think sin is a light thing, nor suppose the evil great. My sin's not that bad. And then a song essentially says, look at the death of the Son of God. That's the seriousness of sin, the weight of sin. So we see that just in this verse. We also see, though, the specificity of the cross. Again, Christ did not just die for sin in general. He died for our sins. Our sins. Your sins. The specific things you have done, the sins you have committed. However heinous, your faith is in Christ. He died for those. All of our sinful thoughts, all of our lovelessness, all of our lust, our sloth, our anger, our hatred, our bitterness, our cold-heartedness, our deceitfulness, all of the stuff in all of those lists, in all of Scripture, every commandment we've broken, things are probably even coming to your mind that you've done, that you've said, they are in mine. These are the sins that Christ gave himself for. Sometimes, I don't know why, we, 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 in our mind, we like divorce this. Yeah, Christ died for sin, but man, my sin's really bad. He couldn't have died for that. Yes, yes. We are so quick to think even that our sins disqualify us from salvation. But the opposite is true. Our sin is what qualifies us for salvation. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the righteous. I didn't come for righteous. I came to seek and save sinners that are lost. It is our sin that lets us know that we need a Savior. So I pray this morning that you would feel the comfort of these words. These are comforting comforting words. With, with all of your works combined, all of the goodness that you could muster, all of the righteous things that you could pile up could not atone for even the smallest of your sins. But Christ, by his sacrificial death on the cross, atoned for all of them. He is the only comfort for guilty consciences, for sinners weighed down by the weight of their sin. He is the only hope for sinners. It's not, it's not our works. It's not our striving. It's not our effort that brings us into the grace of God. It's not our penitence. It's not our ability to sin less than someone else. It's not our church attendance. It's not our service in the church. It's not our ability to stop sinning. None of these things. None of these things atone for our sins. None of these things earn us any righteousness before God. And in fact, if you lean on these things, Paul says, if you think that they earn you any righteousness before God, they damn you to hell. Because Christ, Christ is our only hope. Christ is the one who gave himself for our sins. And so if you look at Christ and say, I don't need that righteousness, I'll get my own, you've denied Christ. That's the point of Galatians, and we'll see that more and more. Christ is our righteousness. Christ crucified 
is our comfort. He is the consolation for guilty consciences because he alone is the one who has made satisfaction, atonement for sin. And so if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, sin has no power to condemn you. Christ himself gave himself for our sins. He slayed the power of death. He destroyed the power of sin and the death and the devil. Why would we hope in anything else? He is the one who gave himself for our sins. Paul tells us that why? Why did Christ do this? Look at what Paul says next. To deliver us from the present evil age. Christ gave himself for our sins for the purpose of delivering us, from rescuing us from the present evil age. What does Paul mean? Well, in, in the Bible, in, in biblical thinking, and Jewish thinking of the day, there were only two ages. There's the present age, which is now, and then there's the future age, when Messiah comes. There's only two ages. The present age is essentially the world since the fall, all the way back in Genesis 3. That's why Paul says it's a present evil age. If you're not convinced that this present age is evil, just read the news. Paul thought it was bad back then. We think it's bad today. It's pretty clear. This is the present evil age. Messiah comes. Jesus came to reverse the effects of the fall and to usher in a new age, a new creation, a new Eden. Now, you might look at that and say, okay, so Jesus has come. He, he ushers in the new creation. Then how are we still living in this present evil age? Well, if you've ever heard someone say this, and this is a, a popular saying for a reason, it's helpful. We live in the already, not yet. So when Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again. He begun the new age, but we are still in this present evil age. The new creation, the new age is breaking through in the lives of believers in the church but it is not fully here. It will be fully here when Christ returns and destroys all evil. So as believers in Christ, we've been rescued from the power of this present age, and yet we are still in this present evil age. This is what Jesus was talking about when he prayed in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, so the world is another way of talking about the present age, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, don't take them out of the world because the world actually needs their witness, yet protect them from the evil that exists here. So we've been rescued, but we're still waiting for the final completion of that rescue. We're still waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for Christ to defeat Satan finally and fully. He defeated the power of Satan on the cross. And yet this defeated foe will not be finally vanquished until Revelation tells us he's cast into the lake of fire at the final judgment. So brothers and sisters, it's, it's like this. We've, we've been liberated, yet we're still living in enemy territory. We're still being harassed by the enemy. We've been delivered from the power of this age, but we're still in it. And so we live in this tension. We're in the world, but not of it. We're in the flesh, but we have the spirit this is, this is the tension we see in Galatians 5, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. Because we live in this present evil age, we're constantly, constantly tempted to live according to it. But we must not. We must remember who we are. We must remember to live instead according to the new creation, according to the age to come. We must remember that in Christ, Paul says this in Galatians 2, we were crucified to the world crucified to the present age and we've been raised with him to walk in newness of life according to the spirit if you like zombie stuff we're like the walking dead we've been dead and yet we've been raised to newness of life don't take that analogy too far <laughs> but this is what your baptism was all about this is what baptism is you went down into the water into death, into the judgment of God. And because of Christ, you were raised out of the water to resurrection. This is the beauty of the ordinances, right? Baptism, the Lord's Supper. 
They are physical reminders of all this gospel truth that Paul is talking about here. They're physical reminders of the work of God in our lives. And through them, he confirms to us, because we are in the flesh, because we're still in our physical bodies, that though we still live in this present age, the future age, the new creation is coming. At the Lord's Supper, we see the same things. We, We partake of the blood and body of Christ together, knowing, looking forward, knowing that one day we will feast together with Christ directly in his presence in the age to come. We'll fe- as we sing, we'll feast together in the house of Zion, worshiping Christ for all eternity. But until then, he prepares this table for us in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of the evil age. So if you're tempted to lose hope, you're tempted to get discouraged, you, you look out, you see this present evil age, look to the means of grace, look to your baptism. Look to the Lord's Supper. Remember the promises of God, knowing that he is faithful. He is faithful. Paul doesn't stop there. Look what he says next. According to the will of our God and Father. We saw this in Ephesians 1. We read at the beginning of the service. There is a bottomless ocean of gospel in these words. The plan of salvation was the plan of God from the very beginning. Christ became flesh. Christ lived a perfect life and died in our place. Why? Because it was the will of God the Father. Too too often we're we're tempted to think or we have this false idea of, of God the Father. He's like the angry one. He's angry at sin. He's ready to rain fire and brimstone on all of creation. But then Jesus comes and he's like, no, dad, no, don't do it. Uh, I'll die in their place. And God the Father reluctantly is like, okay, fine, 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 fine. I won't judge them. You can die in their place. We think of God the Father as cold, angry, judgmental. He's the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus, oh, is the God of the New Testament. Nice, merciful, willing to die. I mean, first, this is an incorrect view of the Trinity. There's only one will in the triune God. There's one God. But it's also just blasphemous. It turns the gospel on its head. So get it out of your heads. Get it out of my head as we're tempted to think that way. We're kind of humanize God. It was the will of the Father that sent Jesus to save us. Our salvation was God's plan from all eternity. An Anglican theologian, Robert Layton, he summarizes this. This has just become one of my favorite quotes. Listen to what he says. We know that this holy trinity cooperates in the work of our salvation. The Father has given us his Son, the Son has sent his Spirit, and the Spirit Spirit gives us faith, which unites us to the Son, and through him to the Father. The Father ordained our redemption, the Son wrought it, and the Spirit reveals it and applies it. That's the gospel. It's the goodness and love of God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. One of our favorite texts shows this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father sent his Son to save us, not out of reluctance, but out of infinite love for us. He saved you. Not out of reluctance because Jesus died for you. Well, now I guess I got to save you. No. He sent Christ for you while you were an enemy of God because his love was set upon you. Oh, how deep. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's the gospel. And and what is the end of it all? What is the ultimate purpose of all of this, of salvation, of your salvation, of my salvation, the purpose of the world? It's the glory of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be 
the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the whole point of everything. Everything is for the eternal glory of God. That he might show forth his beauty and goodness and perfection and holiness, his character to every creature, to every human, to every spiritual being, in all the ages to come for all of eternity. This is why God created us. This is why he saved us. So that he might display his glory in and through us. He rescued us from this present evil age so that in the future eternal age we will see and savor his glory. He is worthy of all of this glory and he will be glorified in all of us and in everything. That is where everything is headed. And so what is the only proper response? Amen. Paul ends it that way. Amen. Which is to say, the meaning of that word is, I agree. Amen. I agree. I submit myself to this great God. And so it is what we must do. This is how we should respond by faith to this great God, to Christ our Savior. This is the message that the resurrected Christ commissioned to Paul to teach And so now, for the second time, the apostle is bringing it again to the Galatians. Comes with the authority of God himself. And because of that, let us, too, believe it by faith. Let us not waver as the Galatians did. So, why did Martin Luther call Galatians his his epistle? Why did he call it his Catherine? Because Martin Luther loved the gospel And Galatians drips the gospel from every line because it is a battle over the most central question of human existence. How can a person stand righteous before a holy God? And the only answer, the only answer is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That is what Galatians is about Let's pray.